Chapter Eleven of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hunting for news, he naturally went to the news emporium, which took the place of the daily paper. Namely, he went to the saloons. But on the way, he ran through a liberal cross-section of the corner's populace. First of all, the tents and the ruder shacks. He saw little sheet-iron stoves with the tin dishes piled, unwashed, upon the tops of them when the miners rushed back to their work. Broken handles of picks and shovels, worn-out shirts and overalls lay where they had been tossed. Here was a flat strip of canvas supported by four four-foot poles and without shelter at the sides, and the belongings of one careless miner tumbled beneath this miserable shelter. Another man had striven for some semblance of a home, and he had framed a five-foot walk leading up to the closed flap of his tent with stones of a regular size. But nowhere was there a sign of life, and would not be until semi-darkness brought the unwilling workers back to the tents. Out of this district he passed quickly onto the main street, and here there was a different atmosphere. The first thing he saw was a man dressed as a cowpuncher, from belt to spurs. Spurs on a miner? But above the waist he blossomed in a frock coat and a silk hat. Around the coat he had fastened his belt, and the shirt beneath the coat was common flannel, open at the throat. He walked, or rather staggered, on the arm of an equally strange companion, who was arrayed in a white silk shirt white flannel trousers with dancing pumps, and a vast sombrero. But as if this was not sufficient protection for his head, he carried a parasol of the most brilliant green silk and twirled it above his head. The two held a wavering course and went blindly past Donnegan. It was sufficiently clear that the storekeeper had followed the gold. He noted a cowboy sitting in his saddle while he rolled a cigarette. Obviously, he had come in to look things over rather than to share in the mining, and he made the one sane critical note in the carnival of noise and color. Donnegan began to pass stores. There was the jewelers, the gents' furnishings, a real estate office. What could real estate be doing on young Muddy's desert? Here was the pawn shop, the windows of which were already packed. The blacksmith had a great establishment, and the roar of the anvils never died away. Feed and grain, and a dozen lunch-counter restaurants. All this had come to the corner within six weeks. Liquor seemed to be plentiful, too. In the entire length of the street he hardly saw a sober man, except the cowboy. Half a dozen in one group, pitched silver dollars at a mark. But he was in the saloon district now, and dominant among the rest was the big, unpainted front of a building before which hung an enormous sign, LeBrun's Joy Emporium. Donnegan turned in under the sign. It was one big room. The bar stretched completely around two sides of it. The floor was dirt, but packed to the hardness of wood. The low roof was supported by a scattering of wooden pillars, and across the floor the gaming tables were spread. At the vast bar, not ten men were drinking now, and at the crowding tables, 
there was not a half a dozen players, yet behind the bar stood a dozen tenders ready to meet the evening rush from the mines. At the tables waited an equal number of the professional gamblers of the house. From the door Donegan observed these things with one sweeping glance, and then proceeded to transform himself. One jerk at the visor of his cap brought it down over his eyes and covered his face with shadow. A single shrug bunched the ragged coat high around his shoulders, and the shoulders themselves he allowed to drop forward. With his hands in his pockets, he glided slowly across the room toward the bar, for all the world a picture of the gutter snipe who had been kicked from pillar to post until self-respect is dead in him. And pausing in his advance, he leaned against one of the pillars and looked hungrily toward the bar. He was immediately hailed from behind the bar with, Hey you, no tramps in here. Pay and stay in Lebron's. The command brought an immediate protest. A big fellow stepped from the bar. His sombrero pushed to the back of his head. His shirt-sleeves rolled to the elbow, away from vast hairy forearms. One of his long arms swept out and brought Donnegan to the bar. I ain't no prophet, declared the giant, but I can spot a man that's dry. What do you have, bud? And to the bartender he added, Leave him be, partner, unless you're all set for considerable noise in here. Long as his drinks are paid for, muttered the bartender, here he stays, but these floaters do make me tired. He jabbed the bottle across the bar at Donnegan and spun a glass noisily at him, and the floater observed the angry bartender with a frightened side glance, and then poured his drink gingerly. When the glass was half full, he hesitated and sought the face of the bartender again for permission to go on. "'Fill her up,' commanded the giant. "'Fill her up, lad, and drink hearty.' "'I never yet,' observed the bartender darkly, "'seeing a beggar that wasn't a hog.' At this Donnegan's protector shifted his belt, so that the holster came a little more forward on his thigh. "'Son,' he said, "'how long you been in these parts?' "'Long enough,' declared the other, and lowered his black brows. "'Long enough to be sick of it.' "'Maybe?' Maybe, returned the cowpuncher miner. Meantime, you tie to this. We've got queer ways out here. When a gent drinks with us, he's our friend. This lad here is my partner just now. If I was him, I would have knocked your head off before now for what you've said. I don't want no trouble, Donnegan said whiningly. At this the bartender chuckled, and the miner showed his teeth in his disgust. Every gent has got his own way, he said sourly. But while you drink with Hal Stern, you drink with your chin up, bud, and don't forget it. And them that tries to run over you got to run over me. Saying this, he laid his large left hand on the bar and leaned a little toward the bartender. But his right hand remained hanging loosely at his side. It was near the holster, as Donnegan noticed, and the bartender having met the boring glance of the big man for a moment, turned surly away. The giant looked to Donnegan and observed, "'Know a good definition of the word skunk?' "'Nope,' said Donnegan, brightening now that the stern eye of the bartender was turned away. "'Here's one that might do. A skunk is a critter that bites when your back is turned 
and runs when you look it in the eye. Here's how. He drained his own glass, and Donnegan dexterously followed the example. And what might you be doing around these parts? asked the big man, veiling his contempt under a mild geniality. Me owe oh, nothing. Looking for a job, huh? Donnegan shrugged. Work ain't my line, he confided. Hmm, said Hal Stern. Well, you don't make no bones about it. But just now, continued Donnegan, I thought maybe I'd pick up some sort of a job for a while. He looked ruefully at the palms of his hands, which were as tender as the hands of a woman. Heard a fellow say that Jack Landis was a good sort to work for. Didn't rush his men none. They said I might find him here. The big man grunted. Too early for him. He don't circulate around much till the sun goes down. Kind of hard on his skin, the sun, maybe. So you're going to work for him? I was figuring on it. Well, tie to this, bud. If you work for him, you won't have him over you. No? No, you'll have, he glanced a little uneasily around him, Lord Nick. Who's he? Who's he? The big man started in astonishment. Suffering catamounts, who is he? He laughed in a disagreeable manner. Well, son, you'll find out right enough. The way you talk, he don't sound none too good. Hal Stern grew anxious. The way I talk? Have I said anything again him? No, not a word. He's, he's, well, there ain't ever been trouble between us, and there never ain't gonna be. He flushed and looked steadily at Donnegan. Maybe he sent you to talk to me, he asked coldly. But Donnegan's eyes took on a childish wideness. Why, I never seen him, he declared. Hal Stern allowed the muscles of his face to relax. All right, he said. There's no harm done. But Lord Nick is a name that ain't handled none too free in these here parts. Remember that. But how, pondered Donnegan, can I be working for Lord Nick when I sign up to work under Jack Landis? I'll tell you how. Nick and Lebron work together, split profits, and Nellie Lebron works for Landis for his dust. So the stuff goes in a circle. Landis to Nellie, to Lebron to Nick. That clear? I don't quite see it, murmured Donnegan. I didn't think you would, declared the other, and snorted his disgust. But that's all I'm going to say. Here come the boys, and dead dry. For the afternoon was verging upon evening, and the first drift of laborers from the mines was pouring into the corner. One thing at least was clear to Donnegan, that everyone knew how infatuated Landis had become with Nellie Lebrun, and that Landis had not built up an extraordinarily good name for himself. End of chapter 11